So today we're going to jump ahead to chapter 19 of the book of Job and we'll read that in a moment. If you want to go ahead and find it, it's page 506 in your pew Bible, chapter 19 of Job starting at verse 21. But I'd like to do a little work before we read that. So check your bulletin and find that scripture reference and then when we get to it we'll just jump right in. So we're jumping ahead to chapter 19, but what has happened since the chapter we left off with, chapter 2, and now is an elaborate discussion that has occurred in the moments immediately following the sitting of Shiva. Remember we talked about sitting Shiva and how they would just be silent with him for seven days? And it's like, it's like somebody must have been keeping watch you know, on their stopwatch. They must have been looking at their wristwatch and, and, uh, and it's like at the end of the last hour of sitting Shiva, Job says, Oh, that I were never born in the first place. My life and light are both painful for me and if I would have been better off in the dark. And so then he starts into this, this terrible agonizing statement, this sort of monologue of pain. And when he gets done with his monologue of pain, his friends, who I said had done some things right, and you're going to find that I'll still defend them even now, but, but his friends hear his, his monologue and they decide that it's time to tell him what they've been thinking. They've had a lot of time to think this over, you see. It's not their loss. They haven't been through this, so they've had plenty of time to think rationally about all of this. And it starts with Eliphaz, the kid, and he says to Job, hey, you know, you comforted a lot of other people, and now you're finding out that what it's really like. You know, in other words, you've been a helper without knowing what it's really like to suffer, and so now you're finding out what it's really like. Well, that, that's comforting, Eliphaz. Thanks, pal. And then... And then Eliphaz goes on a little bit further and he says, in fact, I'm going to say that probably what you're going through is because you've sinned against God somehow. And Job is listening patiently, but finding this all kind of outrageous and absurd. And, and it's like Eliphaz opens the floodgates because then Bildad and Zophar click. They jump into the conversation and Bildad and Zophar say, yeah, you shouldn't really complain, you know. As a matter of fact, you should probably be repenting. That's your problem. You're not repenting of your sin, and that's why you're still suffering. And, and then, as if that wasn't bad enough, Bildad goes so far as to say that his children probably sinned, and that's why they suffered. Now, that's what you want to hear at a time like this, right? You've lost your whole family. You've, you've felt this complete isolation, your children are dead. Let's just call it what it is, the children have died. And this character, Bildad, I'm gonna call him Bill Dumb for a minute here, because he says, they probably brought it on themselves too. And Zophar even apply, implies that Job probably deserved worse punishment. And then from the depths of his depression, Job has heard enough. He's irritated now, which is an understatement. And he says, you're worthless physicians. You whitewash with lies. And 
Then he painstakingly, over several verses, begins to explain to them the goodness of his character. Now, he's not boasting. He's just, he's just being analytical. He's evaluating. I can relate to this. You know, there are times when someone will level a criticism at me, and then I'll listen to it, and then in my own quiet of my thoughts somewhere, I'll really analyze it. Well... Could I have said this and had it interpreted that way? And, you know, I mean, if, if we're honest people who are really trying to be the best version of us we can be, then sometimes criticism is deserved and we have to be honest enough to review it in our thought and decide to what extent it may be justified. And so Job does this, and, and I can relate to Job because we both like to think out loud. And you can, you can ask the staff, that's dangerous during the week. See, these words are prepared beforehand for you. But if you ask me to give an opinion about something, you might want to get comfortable because I'm going to think about it out loud right in front of you and then eventually arrive at a conclusion. Job does this too, which is comforting to me because he seems like a pretty good guy all the way around. And... He says in the end, he says, I've looked at this from left to right, and up and down, sideways, and, and, and honestly, what I need right now is a mediator. In other words, he's, he's looked at himself thoroughly, and what he's realized is, is that he doesn't understand what's going on, and he's honest enough to say he doesn't really understand himself in this, okay? He says, I, I'm not exactly sure where I've gone wrong here, but because I can't see it. I don't, I don't understand what's going on. And one thing I'm certain of is my friends are off their rockers. They don't know what they're talking about either. You know, and, and he says, and, and I know God is awesome. And I still love God. And I still feel a great respect and, and reverence for God. But I can't figure out what's going on with God right now either. I really could use a mediator. Now, you know what a mediator is. I've been a mediator in many occasions in my professional life. It's really where you just let two people who have a difference of opinion and are having difficulty understanding each other, or two parties, if they're having difficulty understanding each other, sometimes they just need someone to manage the conversation until everybody has been understood as well as can be expected. So he's looking for a mediator. And he's asking that if he's done evil, that it would be between him and the Lord. And therefore, he's not really concerned about what his friends have said because he's already written it off as pretty useless under the circumstances. And so what he really wants is someone to stand in the gap for him. Now let's read today's passage from chapter 19 of Job, starting at verse 21. We'll read to 27, page 506 in your pew Bible. Have mercy on me. Have mercy on me, O you, my friends, for the hand of God has touched me. Why do you, like God, pursue me? Why are you not satisfied with my flesh? Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that with iron, pen, and lead they were engraved in the rock forever. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me. Now, this is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Do you know, according to the Mayo Clinic, 
depression is a persistent feeling of sadness or loss of interest that leads to a range of behavioral and physical symptoms that can include changes in sleep, appetite, energy level, concentration, daily behavior, or self-esteem. Depression can also be associated with thoughts of suicide. You say, what the heck? Is that not what Job was suffering? I will let you in on a little personal secret. I've suffered with depression off and on at times in my life. I know what this is like. And I can tell you that I am convinced that that's what Job's problem is at the moment of this particular part of the Job story. He is deeply depressed. And why wouldn't he be? According to the Mayo Clinic, this can be caused by biological, physiological, and social sources of distress. And it is, uh, research has indicated that it actually changes the function of the brain temporarily in most cases. And that means that certain circuits in the brain don't fire the way they normally do. And that's why the mainstay of treatment for depression in this Western world anyway is a combination of talk therapy and medication. And this will almost always lead to healthy recovery. And research also suggests that it, because of the medicine, it normalizes the brain functions, which basically causes you to have the ability to, to be cognitively capable of restoring your thoughts back to a more normal <clears throat> mindset. So this is really remarkable stuff. There's a link in my sermon notes to the research from the Mayo Clinic that I'm citing here. So as one who's experienced this, I can tell you after being down this road myself at times that what Job is experiencing this day is not uncommon. Friends who mean well, but who are not taking into account that this man has been emotionally traumatized. He's been injured, okay? You see, when, when a person is involved in some sort of traumatic injury, they will usually have some outward sign that tells you that they have been through something terrible and you will compensate for that. Your behavior will change because you see them walking on crutches or you see their arm in a sling or you see the wound on their head or something like that or you see them walking with a limp or whatever, you know. But, but the problem with emotional illness and psychological sickness is that it sometimes has no outward sign that you can see. It's a little like my arm. Now, most of you have witnessed my six weeks journey now through the arm uh, shoulder surgery I had. I had some, in fact, I had a surgeon tell me years ago that basically surgery is a traumatic injury. It's just a controlled traumatic injury, you know? And I think that's probably true based on my recent experience because it sure felt like I'd basically had my shoulder run over by a truck, you know. But when I got my, my shoulder repaired, why the next day everybody could see this, the bandage over the incision, they could see the sling. There was no mistaking the fact that I had a serious surgery and that it was going to be a while before I would be able to use my right arm. But as you can tell, I've regained some movement and motion and it's back to normal in many respects now, six weeks later. But it's far from healed. And there are still a lot of things that I need help with 
but only those who are with me every day and really in tune with my journey through this traumatic experience really understand that I'm still recovering from it. And so if I say, could you grab that for me or would you bring me that jug of milk or whatever? Yeah, I still can't lift a jug of milk right now because it's still going to be a while before the recovery. But you can't tell by looking at me now. You might notice if you give me a really vigorous handshake after church and I wince and you say, oh, I guess he's not quite over that yet. Mm -hmm. That's right. However, when we get to the kind of traumatic injury of the spirit and the, of the, and the psychology of our, our being, a lot of times, even in the hardest part of the trauma, even after the truck has hit you and driven away, so to speak, those people don't appear to have a problem. They don't look any different to you. And so Job's friends were kind of like the rescuers and the helpers who are going to be going into the Carolinas and so forth to help with the flood trauma that they're experiencing down there. They'll go in and they'll see flooded homes and they'll help them buck out their homes and they'll help them in all of the ways that seem obvious, but there won't be very many of the helpers who will realize that there is emotional trauma associated with this experience. That those people in those homes are looking at lives that were normal a couple of days ago, just like yours and mine. They will go home to their, their house will be right where they left it. Their stuff will be right where they left it. That paper they left on the table will be right there. But people who have been violated in some way and had their home upset by some traumatic experience, whether it's a robbery or a fire or a flooding of the entire neighborhood by a storm, they will need your help solving their problem, but they also have an emotional injury going on. Emotional experiences and wounds are often pretty much uh, equal to the particular incident. So, for example, and I don't mean this is 100% true, but it's safe to say that those who have experienced a flood or a fire will have one kind of emotional injury, but those who have experienced what Job experienced, complete and utter devastation, Wiping out his entire family, his entire fortune, his entire life has been just erased in a matter of hours or days. Needless to say, when his friends descended upon him after the silence was over, they began to try to fix things without, no, without any particular sensitivity or awareness of where he was emotionally. But their first clue might have been when at the hour, the Shiva is over, he unleashes this, this vitriol, really, of depression. Like I said, as a person who understands it, I read it that way. I see it from my perspective. That's the beautiful thing about these 66 books and these 40 or so authors. They are people like us telling the stories of people like us in a relationship with a God who is always, always revealing more about God's self. And so I wanted to do, as I have throughout this series, I've wanted to present you with some practical real-life stuff. 
When someone in your world is experiencing emotional trauma, there will be depression, and it can literally change the way they think. They literally will not reason things out the same way they would under normal circumstances. And being aware of that is a vital way to help someone in need. You'll recall from last week I mentioned things you can do when you come alongside someone who's grieving. And I mentioned to you that silence is golden. And I mentioned to you that sometimes the most powerful thing you can do is just to recognize some really basic need that they have. My wife is remarkable at this, by the way. I think she is one of the most amazing people I've ever known. And I have watched her, I don't know how many times, do something as simple as grab a tissue and wipe someone's nose for them. Never say a word. Just, just fix their collar and wipe their nose for them and grab another tissue and maybe stick it under, you know how some ladies like to stick a tissue under their cuff, you know, and, and I've just seen her do that. I've watched her, I've watched her take people who are in terrible, uncomfortable situations and she just gently cares for them, never says a word, just sees a need and takes care of it, some really basic thing, you know. I once saw her... A man had just lost his wife. She and we'd been through this with them for weeks and months and years. I'd been calling on them and visiting with them. And in the last six weeks or so of her life, I was there frequently. And Laura often came with me. And, and when she finally passed away, he came to the funeral home to see her for the first time. And Laura and I were there. And he had some earrings in his hand. And he said, I meant to give these to the funeral director and my wife. While I'm standing with him with my arm around him in this moment of greatest despair, my wife, who I don't think has ever done this before in her life, she, she took these two earrings and she reached down and she put them on his wife for him. Didn't hesitate, didn't think, I know she's never done that before, it's different. And I thought, wow, there it is. That's the simple way you care for people in their deepest desperation. And some folks like Laura just do it naturally. But we can all do it if we just work at it. We can all do it. And what we have to do is, a, is to deny our instincts. We have, to, we have to do what doesn't seem natural to us if it seems like it's not going to be helpful. You know, I'm going to argue that Job's friends probably would have encountered a Job under normal circumstances who would have relished this debate. I think they were talking to, this is why I told you I'll defend them to the very end. I think their mistake was simply a lack of sensitivity and, and, and you know, probably if they'd have brought their wives, they wouldn't have been so stupid. Right? You know, because of just being men. Hey, Job, it's time to pull yourself up by the bootstraps. Could I tell you a little secret? When you tell a depressed person to pull themselves up by the bootstraps, what they're thinking is this. I know, because I've thought it. Hey, stupid, if I could flap my arms and fly, I'd probably have a better chance right now of doing that. And I'm sorry for, you know, being literal, but I'm just telling you, I can imagine Job saying, I can't believe you guys. Do you not understand where I am right now? Do you not understand that on any other occasion, I'd probably enjoy having a couple of beers with you guys and debating the universe and sin and theology and all of that, but today... Man, today I'm not up to it, and they just didn't get it.
That was their mistake. They were doing what they've always done, probably with Job and a few of their other friends, but today, no. Today it was bad. See, Job was desperately stuck. He felt completely misunderstood by his friends and above all by God. And while he's stuck in this hole, his friends are trying to figure out how he got in the hole instead of trying to help him get out of it. <laughs> you know, they're debating why he got in the hole in the first place instead of simply going and getting a ladder or some rope or something or just hanging over the edge and pulling their friend out of the depths. But Job begins to understand, as you heard in today's passage, that God doesn't change. God is whoever God is, and this is not the problem. Job begins to understand that he doesn't understand himself as well as he thought. He, do, he begins to realize he doesn't understand himself as well as he thought. He begins to realize that talking about what's bothering you with other people seems like it feels better, but it really doesn't. You know, how many times have you done that? You'll tell anybody who will listen about what's bothering you, but it never really makes you feel better, and it just puts your friends in an awkward position because they don't know what to say either. And if you keep talking long enough, they'll say something stupid. But then again, if you're really depressed, you're not exactly aware that that's what's going on. But here's what I find most remarkable about Job, and this is where this profound statement that he makes about knowing that his Redeemer lives, and knowing that if this doesn't get answered in this lifetime, he's certain there's coming an answer. He's certain that God is unchanging and that this dilemma that has, conf has confounded him is going to be resolved sooner or later, even if it's after he has been dead in the grave and his flesh has gone and all that. You know what he reminds me of in this story? He reminds me of Jesus who said, Father, Father, why have you forsaken me? But then moments later he says, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. See, Job and Jesus have something in common here. I'm sure Job's life didn't compare to Jesus's in the general way, but the fact is, is both Job and Jesus have never really known a time of separation from God. Job is unique, as I told you at the beginning of the series, in that unlike most of the people around him, he has a particular kind of relationship with God, and, and it's like he's never been able to conceive of a time when God wasn't with him until now. And so Job becomes what we call in the church business type of Jesus, that is he becomes a sort of representative uh, image of Jesus before the time of Jesus. He, he's a guy who's literally experiencing the forsakenness that Jesus experienced on the cross for our sake. He's literally a guy who says, despite that, into your hands I commend my spirit. kind of makes you realize how it must have been like for Jesus walking around with those apostles all the time. He loved them dearly. And they often got it right up to the point where they didn't get it, and he'd still be patient with them. But then at one point or another, he's alone. He's entirely alone because he realizes nobody really gets where he is. Jesus was almost certainly placed in a cistern or two 
during his trial that night before he died and those cisterns were used to keep water in but when they were empty they would drop their prisoners down in there because there was no escaping them and I can imagine Jesus in one of these dark holes under Caiaphas's palace or something like that saying father why have you forsaken me he can't conceive of what this is like so the book of Job then is a way for us to understand even more completely the desired relationship with Jesus, with the Lord, that we would all have if we would work at it and if God would be so kind as to cause by the power of the Holy Spirit. You see, Job has argued with his friends that if he'd done something wrong, God certainly had the power to just stop him from doing it in the first place. So he's thought this thing through, you know. He said, well, wait, now God can, God can do anything. Why wouldn't God fix this before it happened? This is where his real dilemma comes that we're going to look at in the coming weeks. But for now, I want you to hear that this story teaches us something about a real human condition that is going on probably even now in our midst. Someone's depressed, clinically depressed. And I'll argue that it's perfectly reasonable for a Christian to be clinically depressed and to need medical intervention. Some people will not agree with me about that. Certainly prayer is a vital part of recovering from depression and a relationship with God is vital to emotional and spiritual well-being. But sometimes God says, I need for you to take a little bit of faith in what I have caused people around you to know and be capable of. And then it begins a process of recovery and healing. And so we've learned then also that if we are friends with or loved ones to someone suffering depression, we need to exercise extraordinary sensitivity and patience. If you know someone who's battling depression, just hang on to them and help them find their way to the best resources available. Pray for them and with them often. Finally, let's remember from this story that Christ our Lord is not unfamiliar with our sorrows. There's really nothing that is part of the human condition that Jesus in his role as our Messiah, both man and God, hasn't experienced for our sake. The Lord you put your faith in for your eternal life is one who understands the road you've walked, who suffered every kind of difficulty that we can conceive of, and came out victorious for our sake. And so we can, like Job, claim that we have a Redeemer and that our Redeemer lives and that one day we'll see him with our flesh and with our own eyes, face to face, probably in the warmth of an embrace from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen? Let us pray. I thank you, God, for your word. I pray you burn it upon our hearts so that you'll be glorified through the way we live our lives. Make us especially careful and sensitive to those who are in need so that we can be your instruments of love and mercy. 
to bring transformation to this world as disciples of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.